This is Native America Calling from our studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm Andy Murphy and welcome to The Menu. This is our regular feature focused on Native food and food sovereignty. In this hour, we'll talk to some Native chefs about their brand new food ventures, discuss how the baby formula shortage is affecting Native mothers, and we'll take a bit of time to highlight this year's Native James Beard Award winners. Stay tuned, we'll be back after National Native News. This is National Native News, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Native advocates in New Mexico voice anger over Friday's U.S. Supreme Court decision to end the federal right to abortion and leave authority up to states. Elder and lifelong Native advocate Noreen Kelly joined reproductive health and advocacy groups on a press call Friday following news of the ruling. Kelly says in the Native community, women are often the decision makers in the household and men have a role as equal partners. She says male politicians and judges should not have access to a woman's body autonomy. Our decisions are owned. They're made with care. And there's reasonings and holiness behind the decisions that women make. So it, it really angers me and it saddens me that someone still thinks that they can make decisions for women. And I appreciate all the men that are supporting us, but they didn't have that right to speak on our behalf. Crystal Curley, director of the Native Women-led organization Indigenous Lifeways, was also in attendance at the press conference. Curley says Native women already face challenges when it comes to health care and lack access to abortion. Curley says in wake of the high court decision, her organization will continue to advocate for Native women's rights. We know that Indigenous women have always been a threat to this colonial system since day one. And now 500 plus years, women and pregnant people as a whole are now a threat to this colonial system. And it's now that this time is so pivotal that we come together and unite. Abortion in New Mexico is likely to remain legal, while neighboring states in the Southwest are expected to see changes. The University of Alaska Southeast is set to offer a free option for Alaska Native language classes starting in the fall. Claire Strimple reports. Alaska Native Languages professor Hune Lance Twitchell says this is part of revitalizing the Thlingit, Haida, and Simshian languages. We didn't put ourselves in this situation. Our language was banished. It was prohibited. It was made illegal. We were tortured and abused and all kinds of things to get us to stop speaking. So why should we have to pay to learn our own language? There's been a decline in Alaska Native languages over the last hundred years due to genocide and assimilation. For the Lingit language, fewer than 50 people who have been speaking the language since birth are still alive. Many elders who were birth speakers died during the COVID-19 pandemic. But Twitchell says there's also been a shift towards language revitalization over the last decade. For example, Outer Coast, a school in Sitka, offered a free year of Lingit courses during the pandemic. Twitchell says 600 people signed up. 
The move towards free classes at UAS is the next step. I think it's going to be medicinal. It's going to alter the course of the way things are going, and it's really exciting. Arts and Sciences Dean Corinne Sulcatis says one of their main jobs is to support faculty and find ways to say yes to projects like this. You have to open doors. You have to bring seats to tables. And I think the way to do that is to create more access. And I think creating free curriculum is a way to create more access for people. Dean Sulcatis says the free classes are made possible with help from Sea Alaska Heritage Foundation and a Language Pathways grant. Students who select the free option won't earn credits or receive a grade. Reporting for National Native News, I'm Claire Strempel in Juneau. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Have a development or construction project? Information at bia.gov DCI, which supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling from our studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm Andy Murphy, and welcome to The Menu. In this hour, we'll talk with a few new Native food entrepreneurs and get an update on the baby formula shortage. But before I go to my first guest, I'd like to share a little bit about what what was said at this year's Reservation Economic Summit in Las Vegas. I attended all the food sovereignty is economic sovereignty panels, and I learned a lot about what tribes are doing to boost their food businesses and agriculture in Indian country. I spoke with Heather Don Thompson. She's the director of the Office of Tribal Relations for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Here's what she had to say about Indian ag moving forward. What are some of the most common barriers tribes and and tribal businesses face in agriculture industries? One of the challenges is that a lot of our agricultural infrastructure grew up in a way that was different than we think about and do things in Indian country. And that has created a lot of unintentional barriers. And I'll give you two examples. One is the manner in which we own and hold land which is for a lot of us held in trust with the United States government. So there are a lot of programs that either A, have challenges and they don't understand how to finance trust land, and then B, other programs, particularly within the federal government, have miscategorized trust lands as federal lands. And when you're categorized as federal lands, you're in the same category as a national park or U.S. Forest Service, and that inadvertently makes you ineligible for a lot of programs. So that's one of the challenges that we're trying to overcome and fix is how tribal trust lands are categorized and how they are financed. How does the USDA work with tribes? 
The United States Department of Agriculture has a very formal tribal consultation policy in which we work directly with tribal leaders to advise us on these policies and how they would like us to proceed going forward. We also have several relationships with indigenous facing organizations like the Intertribal Agriculture Council and the ITBC Intertribal Bison Council who have direct relationships with Native American farmers and producers and they help us facilitate those direct conversations and relationships as well. Are you excited about um, Native food economics in the future? I think that we are seeing a renaissance of Native foods that I am thrilled about, and I think a lot of people in Indian country are as well. A lot of our foodways were harmed against um, no fault of our own over the last few centuries, and I think Native American tribes and Native American individuals are working very hard to reclaim those Native foodways to protect and regenerate our indigenous plants and animals and to build really strong sovereign food systems so that we can feed our own nations and our neighbors. I also spoke with Tommy Peterson. She's the regenerative economies specialist with the international, uh, intertribal, sorry about that, intertribal agriculture council. She is just excited about the future of Indian ag business and getting into the international sector. I think in the last two years you've seen everybody's worried about where their food comes from um, and uh, the security issue too is how, how easily can we get this food to our people. Um, and then we you look back, and I'm a producer myself being a cow-calf rancher, um, that your food was right there the whole time. Our, ourselves, we always grew food in our cultures and we just needed to take back over control of our food um, and put... Uh, I think supporting our existing producers, exporting our tribes that want to get into the agriculture sector, it's a, it's a wonderful sector. I mean, food is great, especially I love the idea of our indigenous foods. I've seen so much successful stories of uh, the sea keepers are able to keep our um, traditional food and actually the nutritional properties that are great for our people. Also, the profit margins, because these are very rare um, blue corn and your different seeds, even rare d different thing, um, kinds of apples. There's a price margin too, for, because they're not at the, the front end of the market. So there's so much opportunity in agriculture. And um, I think right now you're seeing the potential. You're going to get you, youth involved, our tribes involved. I think we take this momentum and, and we can start, uh, start moving the dial when it comes to economic sovereignty. Um, the first part, we want to feed our own people, right? But then there's that profit margin with bringing that outside dollar, especially outside the country dollar, back to your community. In Indian country itself, tribes have the ability to make trade negotiations outside of the U.S. That is available. There is such things as foreign trade zones. But there's a great opportunity. There's a lot of money in agriculture, and there's a lot of culture in agriculture, right? So in all reality, we really are helping our people. That was a small bit of what was shared at the Reservation Economic Summit in Las Vegas last month. Do you know of a new native food business in your area? Is your tribe taking on a new agriculture initiative? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go over to our first guest. Joining us from Pewaukee, New Mexico is Raymond Narano. He's the chef and owner of Menko LLC. He's Santa Clara Pueblo and Odawa. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chef Ray. Uh, my greetings to you all. Uh, thank you for having me. 
Of course, of course. It's um, uh, been really awesome watching you um, start up Minko LLC. So, you know, I've always um, I've always known you as an executive chef at a couple of different uh, restaurants here in New Mexico. So um, you don't have to go into too much detail if you don't want to. But what inspired you to go out on your own and start Minko LLC? Um, it's, it's always been a goal. Um, I just something I've been uh, striving to do. Um, it's uh, I think it's important for uh, our voice as Native people to be uh, heard from our perspective and not from someone else's perspective. All right. So, um, Menko, what went into uh, picking that name? Um, so it means uh, uh, come eat in uh, Tewa. So it's a commonly used word. Um, that would be used uh, in a family setting. Uh, so whenever, when it's time for dinner or for a meal, it's like you tell the, your family, Menko, so that means come eat. Um, so it's just commonality. Awesome. And um, so, so you started this business in the middle of the pandemic. Um, how did that factor, the pandemic, how did that factor into, um, into your business plan? Um, you know, it's uh, there's always challenges, um, especially uh, with uh, people still being uh, scared to come out. Um, also, with uh, uh, the pandemic uh, still lurking in, in a Pueblo country, for sure. I'm not sure about the rest of the country. Um, so, uh, so yeah, definitely uh, challenges. Um, we have to uh, adjust to those by um, by being part of uh, larger events and larger venues um, uh, to compensate uh, uh, possible uh, lost wages to just uh, kind of being stagnant, I guess. Right. Um, so, well, you know, we're talking about Minko, we're talking about kind of like the business end, but the food and um, you share a lot of awesome videos and photos of uh, the food that you serve from Minko. Can you tell, um, can you tell all of us what is on the menu? Okay, um, so we start with, uh, well, most of the dishes uh, are things that, um, I've developed over uh, the course of time. Um, so some of them are, I guess, perfected over time. Um, and then some of them are dishes that I uh, would uh, cook for staff and behind behind the scenes, um, especially our, our new taco, uh, which is a steak taco with a Brazilian twist um, that has a added sweetness. Um, uh, we actually call it a gangster meat taco uh, because it's uh, so good. It makes you say that's gangster. <laughs> uh, we have other items. Uh, we have a uh, turkey sandwich um, that uh, it's uh, just been developed. It's a Monte Cristo uh, slash turkey sandwich. I have some uh, fusion pasta that introduces uh, the three sisters um, into uh, into new um, cuisine. One well, to in introduces the three sisters into the world, kind of uh, as a um, as a bridge. Um, uh, so questions can be asked about uh, what are the three sisters, uh, things like that. Um, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much the base of the menu. 
Yeah. And you use the word uh, fusion. You use introducing the three sisters to um, uh, diners in, in kind of a more casual way. Why is that important for you to um, kind of mix uh, just what's plain delicious with um, some of these traditional flavors and ingredients? Um, what's important for uh, for identity, uh, for Native people, and also for uh, the food to tell a story um, so you could explain your food and, and, it, and, it, and it, it has more of an lasting impression uh, when it has a story and a, and a, and a, and a good and, and a good flavor also. <laughs> All right. And um, uh, what uh, you mentioned, uh, some of these dishes have been perfected over time. What's what's one or two of these dishes that you perfected over time? Uh, you know, I I've taken a, a sort of a, my macaroni and cheese. Um, <laughs> it's just become um, very good. You know, right now we have a bacon, uh, green chili. It's just an awesome dish. Um, come try it. All right. And um, we're going to go to a break in just a little bit here, but um, we're talking with a couple of Native food entrepreneurs today on the menu on Native America Calling. If you have some food news to share from your Native community, give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be back after this break and um, resume talking with with Chef Ray here. Commercial piloting has long been a profession dominated by men, but more and more women are attempting to break through the glass ceiling by becoming pilots. We'll hear from Native women in the profession. Come fly with us on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Andy Murphy, and this is The Menu, our regular feature focusing on indigenous food news. Do you have exciting food news to share with us? Join us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, we were talking with uh, Chef Ray Narano. He's um, with Manko LLC. He's the owner of uh, Manko LLC. And... Um, um, Chef Nerano, I wanted to ask you, um, Minko is a mobile uh, food business. Um, why choose mobile rather than, um, you know, kind of traditional brick and mortar? Um, so the, the, the first part was uh, just try, trying to get it open. Um, so that's the phase we're in now. Um, really, uh, we're trying to transition into uh, doing a uh, full-on mobile catering business where uh, – 
we bring uh, the catering to the operation. Um, and then we're going to be focusing more on, um, on the fine dining foods that I'm more known for. Um, so this is sort of a phase of bringing us in, introduction with some of my signature fun dishes, and then transitioning into this uh, elaborate catering system. Nice. I'm familiar with some of those fine dining dishes you're talking about. I, I still um, think about the turkey that I had <laughs> last year, uh, the turkey and the uh, uh, pinyon butter. Oh, my gosh. Um, I can't wait to, to have a taste of some of the other uh, menu items you have over at Manko. Um, but, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about entrepreneurship today. What were some of the most maybe difficult parts of uh, putting together, you know, business plans and, you know, mapping out your whole business here? Um, well, without the experience, I, I, I could see that it could have been a lot more challenging. Um, uh, really, the hardest part is the hours you got to put in. Um, you just countless hours for from the building phase all the way through the opening, uh, just staying positive, uh, keeping good vibes, um, and, and just making it happen. All right. All right. And, uh, where can folks find you up in, uh, Northern New Mexico? Um, so we're doing a lunch service, um, on Wednesday, uh, through Saturday at the post center. Um, that's in Joaquin, New Mexico. Um, and we'll be, we do some concerts on Friday night in uh, Los Alamos, and we are open. We try to travel around on Saturdays and, and do some um, lo different local events um, in the evening time. All right. And what about on uh, social media? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we have a, a new uh, Facebook page. Um, you could also, so that's Manco LLC on Facebook, and it's uh, Chef Ray Naranjo on Instagram. All right. Um, we're going to link to Manko LLC on our website, nativeamericacalling.com. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chef Nurano, for joining us today. Um, so I would like to move on to a different topic uh, right now. In February, Abbott Nutrition, the country's largest baby formula producer, recalled their formula and shut down their Michigan plant. This caused a nationwide shortage of formula on store shelves and a crisis for many mothers who have had really difficult times finding formula for their babies. And the government has responded by flying in millions of cans of formula from other countries. And just as things were looking up and Abbott Nutrition got the green light to start making formula again, the plant was hit with storms and flooding last week and they had to shut down uh, production again. So uh, to talk more about this issue with me, I'd like to bring in Cami Goldhammer. She's the Hummingbird Indigenous Families. Uh, she's the founding director of Hummingbird Indigenous Family Services, uh, an instructor, an instructor for the Indigenous Lactation uh, Counselor Training and a lactation consultant. She's Sisseton Wapiton, and um, welcome, Cami. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, honey, I'm Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. 
Hi, thank you for joining. I mean, you know, we're talking about native uh, food, and we can't forget some of those first foods that um, every native baby, uh, you know, has to have is uh, milk, uh, and sometimes that means formula. Um, how How is this baby formula shortage uh, impacting native mothers and babies? Yeah, I mean, it has had... Uh, far-reaching impacts throughout the United States, but when speaking specifically about Native moms, it's important to know that Native moms have some of the lowest breastfeeding rates in the in the country, and so a disproportionate amount of our babies do receive formula, and then um, many of our communities living in, you know, in reservation communities, rural communities, um, formula can be very difficult to access anyway, right? Even when there's not a shortage, whether that's the cost or um, just not having as much of it where it's more concentrated in urban areas and et cetera. And so, yeah, the shortage has had significant impacts in many of our communities. And I'm sure folks have seen, you know, social media posts of um, homemade formulas and, you know, making the rounds and people posting in, different indigenous parenting groups asking for folks to look in their areas for their formula. Um, but it's terrifying for families to not know how they're going to feed their babies. And so this has just created a lot of stress for a lot of, a lot of families. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit of it, but how have you seen um, folks mobilize to help mothers out during this time? Yeah, you know, there's there's been a, actually a lot of folks doing a lot of different things, but not not all of it is is helpful or recommended. And so a great example of that would be, you know, encouragement or sharing of recipes of homemade formulas, which are nutritionally um, inappropriate for babies. Um, really, if a baby cannot be breastfed, then the the best option for them would be an artificial infant formula. Um, so, you know, there's there's this thing where everyone really wants to help out, but there's certain ways that we need to be able to do it. So I definitely don't recommend using or making or sharing of infant formula, um, homemade infant formulas. Um, but, you know, we've seen, uh, what I've seen throughout the community is, parents helping each other out. I've seen on social media groups, people going to stores and seeing formula on the shelf and posting it, you know, in a mother in like indigenous motherhood and saying like, I'm at this store. Um, they have this formula here. Like, what do you need? And people buying it for families and shipping it to other families. Um, you know, uh, most babies are going to do, do fine on most formulas, but there are some babies who do need to use a very specialized formula and those families are at added, you know, like added increased stress because their babies just can't have anything else. And so you also see a lot of people, you know, posting on social media saying like, my cousin needs this formula. Can you look in your stores and everything and people rally and they do it. And it's really, you know, really beautiful to see, um, and then, you know, the other thing is that there's just been a huge push to support families in, um, you know, in breastfeeding and relactation, um, milk sharing, 
uh, within the community, which is a traditional practice, and a, a lot of people are, are also utilizing those services and supports as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for for maybe folks like myself who, um, you know, are not near a lot of babies, <laughs> we don't really know what is uh, inside a formula. Um, what is inside of this formula? I mean, why can't folks make it at home? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. So, you know, artificial infant formula, um, which is kind of the or commercial artificial infant formula, um, contains about 40 to 40 to 50 different ingredients that has been, um, that is regulated um, by the U.S. government. And I know we could get into bigger conversations about colonialism and how the U.S. government has failed to regulate a lot of things. But, you know, overall, uh, infant formula is regulated. It has to meet certain standards um, nutritionally, and it has gone through decades of research to um, create just the right recipe for what an infant needs. Um, So a lot of the homemade formulas that we're seeing being shared, um, you know, just like straight up, uh, you know, are being uh, not necessarily being sterile, things like that, the environments that they're created in, which is what, you know, what has led to actually the artificial infant formula shortage, right? It was an unsterile environment. so that can cause an increased risk, um, but nutritionally, it is not. They do not have the ingredients that a baby needs. Baby needs very a growing baby needs a very high fat milk, and a lot of the artificial or the homemade formula recipes that are being shared have a serious lack of a lot of nutri- nutrients, but particularly fat and calories. Um, so, and that can have detrimental impacts on a baby, especially with long-term use. All right. And, um, you know, I know you mentioned uh, just in the beginning here that there are uh, Native women have uh, low rates of um, low breastfeeding rates. But, um, you know, why can't, uh, you know, if, if uh, Native mothers are struggling to find a formula for their babies, I mean, um, can't they just switch over to breastfeeding? Is it an easy switch like that? It I, It is unfortunately not an easy switch, mm-hmm. Andy. And I wish, you know, I wish it was. Um, and I do think, you know, a lot of, a lot of lactation consultants out there were, you know, we're really wanting to, you know, make sure folks understand that because I think a lot of people are really disappointed to find out that it's not, not so easy. Um, and cause we, I do get reached out to all the time with people wanting to bring their milk back. We call that relactation if they were previously lactating, you know, or previously gave birth. Um, and it, it is quite a long process. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, how long has it been since they breastfed or lactated? Um, how old is their baby? What was their milk production like prior to stopping lactation? Things like that, right? There's a lot of things that um, can go into it where some people may have an easier time. So an example of that would be someone who maybe delivered a baby two weeks ago who never tried breastfeeding, right? Maybe from the beginning they tri- they decided to formula feed um, and then two weeks in they decide they'd like to try breastfeeding. We'd actually have a pretty good chance of bringing in their milk and getting, you know, getting that baby breastfe- breastfed. But, you know, someone that, uh, you know, is 
is several months postpartum, a year postpartum. I've been reached out to by people who haven't lactated in um, years, you know, but they're kind of like, I would like to make milk to donate to families. And, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's not, that's, that's really hard. And that takes months, months of prep for literally um, uh, drops of milk, which um, a lot of people don't necessarily have the, the time to be able to do that for the outcome. Um, but yeah, I mean, the best way to, to get to breastfeed is to establish breastfeeding in the very beginning. And we do see a lot of families with this formula shorting because formula has never been a sustainable option for us, right? I mean, it's, we've always been dependent on this system and there are recalls every year of formula and human milk is really the only sustainable option for our, for our communities. But there's a lot of barriers to that too. So we, you know, we have to take a multi-pronged approach to at, at solving these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the barriers you mentioned earlier is the cost of, um, you know, a can of formula. Um, how have you seen the cost of formula change over time? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, commercial infant formula is is a very expensive product anyway. Um, you know, a generic um, store brand can of formula is about thirteen to fourteen dollars. Um, that's that's kind of in an urban area where there's lots of stores, lots of options. If you get up into you know a store in, let's say Barrow, Alaska, for example, mm-hmm. you know you're looking at probably double that cost. Um, and so it's going to vary depending on where you are and how much it costs to get that product to you that we're going to see an increase. Um, so, yeah, over time, um, it's gotten more and more expensive. Of course, many families in the U.S. today are being impacted by inflation and the high cost of everything right now. And with the formula shortage, that has created more of a, um, you know, a additional cost for families. Um, there's unfortunately a pretty active black market too for form for infant formula now, where people are buying it and then reselling it back to community um, at uh, you know much more than what they could buy buy it at the store, and that exasperates the problem. You know, so we do have people that are, and I'm not saying that about necessarily Native people, but just what we're seeing in you know in the general population behaviors that are happening that people are seeing it as a, as a way to make money similar to how, you know, hand sanitizer and face masks were at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I was reading an article um, in the Washington post about that. Uh, One of the examples they, they uh, wrote in that article was a hundred dollars a can or uh, $600 uh, for a six pack. And uh, this was just like a normal kind of can that I've seen, you know, a couple times at the store. Um, you know, we're going to go to a break in just a little bit here. But uh, Cami, thinking about a, a shortage and thinking about how hard it can be for uh, some moms to find a formula. Uh, you know, how can a baby's health be impacted if um, it comes to, you know, being in, in a desperate state where you're having to really water down your uh, formula? I mean, how, when you're not getting that many um, nutrients and, and, and fat and everything in the formula, how are babies' health uh, affected? 
That's a great question, and thank you for bringing up the kind of the watering down of formula because mm-hmm. that's another thing that families are doing to stretch out what they have. Um, and it, it can actually have detrimental effects, the most extreme being death as a result of starvation um, or malnutrition. Um, but most, most babies, that wouldn't happen too, right? Most babies, we, we would hopefully uh, recognize problems leading up to that. Um, but, I, you know, we can have babies uh, who are going to be lethargic. Um, they can be weak. Um, our, for infants, their brain is, uh, is developed through fat. That's why a high fat milk and is really important for them. Our babies from the day they're born until they're three years old develop 80% of their brain in that time. And they do that by having a high fat diet. And so it can have impact on their brain development. Okay. All right. Um, sorry about that. We'll be back after this break with Cami uh, Goldhammer talking about the baby formula shortage. My name is Assad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You are tuned into Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're talking about Native American food today because this is the menu, our regular food feature produced and hosted by me. If you have some Native food news to share, join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And uh, we're here with Cami Goldhammer. She's the founding executive director of Hummingbird Indigenous Family Services, and she's also a uh, lactation consultant. Um, Cami, right before the break, we were talking about uh, brain development uh, in, in babies and how maybe watering down uh formula might uh, be detrimental to baby's brain development and other development. Can you uh, continue your comment there? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit um, more about um, some other things that you might see in babies whose formula is watered down um, is uh, diarrhea um, and gut issues as well um, can, can be dangerous. So it's, it's definitely not recommended. Um, and, and we understand how desperate families are. And so we need to try and get them connected to resources so that they don't have to do that. All right. And, um, where can mothers go? Um, what, what kind of resources are out there for mothers if they're, if they're experiencing, um, you know, the, the button of this shortage? Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely go to your, you know, primary care provider, your pediatrician, um, for families that qualify for WIC, which is a federal subsidy um, program, women, infants, and children. Um, you can go to WIC as well um, and talk to them about, uh, about, you know, your resources and options. Um, definitely reach out to your community um, Indigenous lactation counselors or lactation consultants. Um, or uh, Indigenous doulas, we have been working really hard to 
um, create a network and provide support to families that we serve on a national level. Um, and so, you know, reaching out to folks there would be would be really help, helpful too. All right. And um, for mothers who wanna uh, who want help. Uh, breastfeeding, uh, what kind of resources are available uh, for them? Absolutely. Um, it's highly dependent on where you live and, and you know, there's a, a serious lack of Indigenous lactation supporters out there, but um, you can definitely go to WIC as well for lactation support. Um, reach out to your peer counselors. We have a network of Indigenous lactation counselors, so uh, over 400 strong throughout the country, throughout Turtle Island. So please, you know, look into your local community lactation supporters and, and doulas as well. Um, and then you can also find a lactation consultant in your area by just searching online. Um, and you also can always reach out to me personally. I would be happy to and would be happy to connect you to, to folks in your area as well. All right. And where can folks find you then? Um, you can find me on Facebook under Cami Goldhammer or through Indigenous Lactation Counselor. Um, TikTok coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Cool. Thank you so much, Cami, for joining us today. Um, so before we move on, I'd like to say congratulations to some Native James Beard Award winners. The award ceremony was held this month, and a couple of Native culinarians took home prestigious awards. Awanmi, the indigenous restaurant in Minneapolis, won for Best New Restaurant. That's Best New Restaurant in the Country. It's a product of the Sioux Chef, an indigenous culinary powerhouse led by Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson. Also, Chef Robin Mei'i of Fet Restaurant in Honolulu won Best Chef for the Northwest and Pacific region. She's part Native Hawaiian and focuses on ingredients and flavors from Hawaii. Hawaii. Also, the film Gather won the award for Best Documentary. The film focuses on Native food sovereignty and features Native food advocates like Twyla Castor from San Carlos Apache, Samuel Genshaw from Yurok, and El uh, Elise Dubray from Cheyenne River. It was directed, directed by Sanjay Rawal and backed by a host of Native producers. Gather is actually on Netflix right now, so you can stream it if you want to watch that award winning documentary about native food so i'd like to bring in our next guest joining us from broken arrow oklahoma is jackie siegfried she's the chef and owner of native she's shawnee and an enrolled member of the cherokee nation welcome to native america calling jackie hey how are you thank you for having me out of course, of course. We are doing pretty good here talking about food. That's my favorite subject. I could talk about this all day, but um, we've got <laughs> we've got uh, maybe 10 minutes or so before the end of the show. And I wanted to ask you, um, Native, your restaurant in Oklahoma, opened its doors back in um, April. Um, how's, how are things uh, been going so far? community. We've had tons of people travel to come out and try our food, great feedback and educational purposes of people being like, I actually do it this way in my family. And we've been able to kind of incorporate some other things into our menu and how we do things. So it's been wonderful. 
All right. What kinds of um, uh, foods, uh, what kinds of dishes are on the menu? All right. So we have like a plethora of food. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a Three Sisters stew. We have the shofa. We have pollo. We have bison sliders. We have bison and beef fillets. Seared trout with a wild onion to cherry. We have seared duck with charred dandy lying greens and roasted mushrooms. We've got grape dumplings. We have a gluten-free pecan honey cake. We do a sweet corn cheesecake, and then we do specials all the time. Awesome. Um, One of the things I really love to ask uh, chefs and restaurant owners about is menu uh, development. Um, Where where did some of these ideas and uh, dishes come from? Some of it came from, like, people that I've just talked to, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I haven't had this in so long. And I'm like, well, let me see if I can make it, and then I make it for them, and then I make it for me, and then I make it for, like, 20 other people. And I'm like, all right, this is a solid dish. We can definitely make it. Some of it's where I get an ingredient, and I become kind of obsessed with that ingredient, like sunchokes. Uh, we have a sunchoke milky. I made sunchoke, like, mashed potatoes. I did it as a hash. I did it as anything that I could substitute it into. And then I was like, ooh, I'm going to make gnocchi out of it, and it's delicious. So then I kind of just go down these rabbit holes and quiz my husband. And I'm like, is this good? Taste this for me. Please taste this. And it sticks. Yeah. Um, what are, what are um, you know, some of the dishes that um, are maybe uh, most popular there so far? So our pork belly succotash does amazing. It's very light, but it's very filling. It's fresh veggies. It's pretty much like um, sauteed and then like a hog fried pork belly on it. So that does really good. The sunchoke gnocchi does really good because it is vegan and gluten-free. So that's a solid option if you have dietary restrictions. The grape dumplings always do well because people love grape dumplings. Our Three Sisters stew and Pashofa sell amazingly. They hold up well so people get them to go at the end of their meal. And I'm like, I'm going to take it to lunch the next day type of thing. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, I've been looking at your um, uh, Facebook, the uh, Native Restaurant Facebook, and the photos there are really, really good. Um, I, I, you know, the one thing as a, like a multimedia journalist uh, that that I am, I really love looking at um, food photography. I, I subscribe to a couple of different food magazines, um, almost specifically for the food photography. Um, but I have to say that the the photography over at uh, Native is is pretty good. What who's um, uh, who's the photographer? All right, so it's actually my friend named Joel Chan, and mm. he's amazing. And so over time, he's been like, his mom, they're Singaporean, and his mom's an international chef. She's amazing. So he does great food photography. And he came in one day and was like, get closer to your food, do this, and give me a bunch of pointers. And then whenever we do food photo shoots, he comes out and helps out with those. So combination awesome. of him and my husband will randomly take pictures and be like, this looks great because the sun's perfect right here. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. What would um, what would you suggest for um, uh, diners ha- uh, to take a good photo at a restaurant, a good uh, food photo at a restaurant? Um, so getting close to your plate. You're going to have a lot of, like, negative space if you go outwards. If you get up there a bit, you're going to be able to focus on it. You're going to be able to get all the ingredients on the plate in there, making sure your lighting's good 
and take about 30 photos. Mm-hmm. You're going to take a bunch of them. You're going to hate most of them. Have one that's a solid one. And then you can kind of go to that back to that angle if you're able to take the time. Because it depends on if you're taking your photo just to be able to take the photo of the food or are you waiting to eat it. Because you don't want to wait too long. Your food get cold and then the quality of the food isn't good. That's what we're here for is to eat it. But if you're just looking for that photo, take a bunch of them because then you'll be able to have some options and then be able to eat it and be able to accurately describe it when you should be eating it instead of being like 30 minutes later because you keep pausing and going back and deleting and doing more. <laughs> right. Um, it's it's uh, kind of funny how taking photos at the restaurant has become part of the dining experience, especially for uh, younger um, younger folks. Um, and uh, you know, one thing I if if you really want to take a really good photo at a restaurant, um, always get a seat by the window. An open window is just the best light. Um, you know, you can't have any kind of light like that from any other um, light bulb or lamp or overhead chandelier you know that that window light is just uh your best friend when taking those uh food photos at a restaurant um (laughs) uh, so so jackie um take me through the business side of the restaurant i mean how did things start moving and and tell me what it was like uh right before you opened those doors back in april Oh my gosh, it was so hectic. Mm -hmm. So we found this location during the pandemic and somebody had walked on their lease and we were able to get in there at like a good cost and we're like, cool, but they just left it in the pits. I was like, it's fine. I don't mind cleaning. I can do that. But then we had like pipes bust in the ceiling and then had to like redo some tile work and fix equipment. I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually cursed. And then we finally got to like doing the menu testing, and it was mind-blowing. Everything that we had to deal with beforehand, we balanced out. And it was okay. And did a soft opening. We had some people come out that just different foodies that I've known and people in the culinary world. And I'm like, taste this. Tell me if I need to change anything. Is this too much? Because I like to use a lot of microgreens. They're just delicious. And we got a lot of really good feedback and then we opened the doors. I didn't think too much of it being like a Friday lunch shift on us opening. So I was like, cool, not that big of a deal. People are in school, people are working. We'll ease our way into the evening. Evening will be crazy busy. Mm-hmm. Well, it ended up being good Friday and I forgot that was a thing and we got slammed. So I was like, oh my goodness, that's crazy fun. Cause we were of course shorthanded cause we weren't ready for that, but it was, Everything going out, once we got into, like, the groove of it, everything started meshing, and then we started getting people coming back from that, like, first weekend and getting repeat customers, and they become regulars, and, yeah, it was amazing. All right. Uh, so, so what was... Um you know, behind the native aspect of the restaurant, I mean, uh, you probably could have gone uh, a whole different, uh, different ways with uh, the menu and the concept of the restaurant. But why uh, share native food in, in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma? All right. So I feel like food is like a great way to educate people. I feel like that's something that the native community is lacking from the outside world. Like, they just don't know that we have this amazing food, that we have this very enriched 
culture because they're not exposed to it. Like I've had so many people like, yeah, like Thanksgiving food. And I'm like, not like Thanksgiving food, but we do have Turkey. So you kind of are right, but they just don't know. So I was like, if I can bring some education and bring those flavors that we had before colonization and even past colonization and be able to fuse them together and make it to where people are open-minded to tasting something new that they've never had, then they'll ask questions about it. And then that's an opportunity that we can educate somebody and then they kind of know a little bit more and they're more empathetic to other people and other religions and other cultures. So that's kind of what I want to do with Native. All right. And um, do you have future plans, future menu items? Yeah, so we change seasonally, so it's always going over to, like, the farmer's market and seeing what we can get, working with some local farmers that are here that are indigenous, so we always try to buy as much as we can from those farms or farms that we are able to find online that are doing, like, wild grains or, like, maple syrups, any of those that we can get shipped to us, we always do. But then we want to do cooking classes with the Indian education system out here, we actually did their youth powwow and talked to them about setting up school classes of them bringing out like the middle school and high school kids and teaching them how to make some of these dishes that were a little bit more like technical so that they couldn't necessarily teach it at school, but we can be like, all right, this is how you break down a piece of meat. This is how you use your knives safely. This is how you make said dish. So we're working on that currently. <laughs> All right. Cool. That sounds awesome. Um, where can folks find Native uh, Restaurant on social media, online? All right. So you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. It's just at Native Restaurant. It's going to be a black logo. It's spelled N-A-T-V with a line over the A to make it long. We're located in Broken Arrow at 1611 South Main Street. It's going to be on the south side of the main street. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining the menu on Native America Calling. That is the end of the show. I'd like to say thank you to everybody who joined us, including Chef Ray uh, Nerano and Cami Goldhammer. Uh, links to their work and to their businesses are on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Uh, I'm your host for the menu. Andy Murphy. Catch the menu on Native America Calling at the end of every month. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Healthcare.gov. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.